Welcome, folks. I'm Steve Shepard, host of the Natural Curiosity Project, the home for stories that need to be told. My guest today is John J. Gahagan. John's a writer. He's written pieces for some of the most prestigious publications in the country, including the New York Times and Wired Magazine. He's the author of multiple books, some of which you're going to hear about today. He's a ferocious researcher diving into some of the most arcane topics you can possibly imagine and every time emerging with a compelling story that you're going to want to know about. You can trust me on that. So, John, welcome to the program. Let's start with a kind of a high-level question. How did you get to this interesting place in your life? I'm an author. I'm a journalist. I'm an editor. And I think I'm very much a a naturally curious person because I'm always fascinated by how things work or how they got to be the way they are. You know, I think a lot of people just take for granted about how things are, you know, why things are the way they are today. But I'm always interested in the mechanics behind it. I mean, I think that's driven a lot of my um, a lot of my journalism and a lot of the books that I've written is is an attempt to really uh, dive deep and and understand and explain in a way that other people can can grasp and hopefully in an entertaining way explaining why something was or is the way it is. Yeah, and that comes through loud and clear. I mean, y- y- your point is kind of interesting because, you know, one of the things I always like to say is that I love meeting people who have had kind of nonlinear careers. You know, it's not the, you know, the person that got the accounting degree that now works for an accounting firm for his whole life. I mean, there's value in that, no question. But people that follow a passion, follow a, a, an interest because they're curious they tend to have really great stories to tell, and and you are you are clearly one of those. In fact, you kind of specialize in inventions, innovation. What you you know, call it whatever you 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 want to call it, that kind of fail in the marketplace, and yet they're still out there. Talk to me about that a little bit. That's a fascinating thing. Right. I, I specialize in reporting on unusual inventions that uh, that fail in the marketplace despite their innovative nature. And I call these inventions white elephant technology uh, or wet tech for short. I've been reporting on, on these inventions for you know 20 years now. I've, I've written about them for the New York Times Science section, for a popular science, for Wired magazine, for the Smithsonian Air and Space magazine. And it's really been kind of the unifying theme in the books that I've written. I'm not even sure that my publishers or my literary agents understand that. But but I basically write about white elephant technology. My, my first book, Operation Storm, was about these underwater aircraft carriers that the Japanese built during World War II to attack New York City and Washington, D.C. as a follow-up to Pearl Harbor. And my latest book, uh, When Giants Ruled the Sky, is about the U.S. Navy airship program during the 20s and 30s. And both those books have at their core, uh, you know, white elephant technology. In the, in the case of Operation Storm, it was these giant submarines that could travel one and a half times around the world without refueling and surface off the East Coast and launch 44 attack bombers. And in the case of Giants, you know, it was these amazing Zeppelins that the U.S. Navy built that you know few people know about but they were the largest most expensive most technologically sophisticated aircraft in their day we're we're talking the 1920s and 30s here but the amazing thing about about um the US Navy's airship program is they were flying aircraft carriers you know these zeppelins carried um five airplanes in their belly which they could 
uh, deploy and retrieve while in mid-flight, which was an amazing technology for back in the 30s. So both those books have wet tech inventions at their core. And, and there's just something about innovative technology that fails that, that to me, begs to tell the story. Yeah, but why is that? Why does the story need to be told? Because we're so focused on success in our culture. You know, it's always about these amazing success stories, you know, which which usually turn out to be pretty rare. But failure is very widespread. Something like 80% of all books, movies, CDs, you know, fail to make a profit. So to me, it's kind of like the uh, white elephant technology is the purest expression of the human condition. It has a lot of drama inherent with people who inventors who believe passionately in their project, uh, as the Japanese did with these uh, E-400 submarines or the U.S. Navy did with the USS Macon and the USS Akron. And so there's a lot of drama inherent in the story of these inventions that fail. And I think that's what really attracted me to the topic. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. In my career, I've spent a lot of time in the telecom and IT and media world. And as a result of that, I've had the honor, the privilege of spending a lot of time at Bell Laboratories in New Jersey. And they they were, at the time anyway, one of those places that exist to invent. You know, there wasn't necessarily a, we're going to do this inventive work so that we can make a profit in the following way. It was more well, what if we do this? I mean, if you look at all the things that got discovered as a result of that kind of effort at Bell Laboratories, including, you know, the science behind the Big Bang and and you know things like that, um, that's important because, to your point, not all of those efforts succeed, but all of them move us forward. Even if they don't, even if they fail commercially, they still move human knowledge, human understanding, human insight in the right direction. So, so you're right; it's never ever a wasted effort. Yeah, and Bell Labs is is you know was it was a pure research undertaking. It wasn't as profit focused as a lot of R and D is today. And as a result, Bell Labs came up with some absolutely amazing innovations. Um, that you know many of which were eventually commercialized, but that wasn't always um, what they were about. In the case of the inventions that I write about, the wet tech inventions, you know, usually there's an inventor behind it who's who's you know dearly hoping for success and uh, hoping to make some money out of it, except in the case of the military, which actually has huge budgets to spend on these types of inventions, not looking necessarily to commercialize them, but hoping they're going to be effective in war. And I think that's one reason why the military is such an incredible source of wet tech inventions is because they do have deep pockets and they're not necessarily bound by the by, you know, the, uh, the commercial obligations to try to make a profit, you know, which is why an underwater aircraft carrier or a flying aircraft carrier could actually uh, come into existence. Oh, no question about it. And and again, very few people are aware of those efforts, right? Whether they succeeded or not, I believe people ought to know that. People ought to know that airplanes were launched very capably from Zeppelins, that that the Japanese, in fact, had a, a, a an underwater aircraft carrier capable of launching bombers on the coast of the United States during World War II. I mean, how many people are even aware of that? That's that's the extraordinary thing. And that's, of course, another thing that appeals to me. You know, it's very difficult to find a topic today that hasn't been pawed over by a, a number of, of authors or journalists. So it, when I first came across the mention, an obscure mention of these uh, 
underwater aircraft carriers that Japan built, you know, my my um my alarm bells immediately started to sound because it sound, was such a counterintuitive concept to me. You know, underwater aircraft carrier, what could that possibly be? And I expected as I did my research to find, you know, quickly that it was just some pipe dream on paper that never that never made it past the vaporware stage. But that's really the challenge is, is to find these stories which haven't been told. It was easier, I think, in the case of my book, Operation Storm, because it was about a Japanese uh, mission. And, you know, the victors tend to write the history. And there there hasn't been a lot of uh, research done in the West or books written in the West about World War II from the Japanese point of view. And so that was kind of an opportunity for me that I I found intellectually you know, challenging and interesting to try to understand you know, what was going on in their heads and why would they undertake a, a mission that seemed like such a um, such a kind of a Hail Mary operation. And and as I as the more I dug into it and, you know, uncovered uh, officers and crew had actually served on these submarines and they told me what was in their heads and in their hearts. I began to realize this is not a history that they taught me about in high school. You know, it was it was a it was a fresh perspective for me that I found fascinating. I think that's a skill that everyone should develop. That's part of critical thinking in my mind. That there's always you know another side to the story. There's always more to it than what you think you know, and it's probably one of the few things that allows us to battle the specter of confirmation bias, which in today's world especially can be a very dangerous thing, right? We don't want to reinforce what we already know unless we've also taken into account other perspectives that are important. You're a journalist and in fact have written for some, as you mentioned a moment ago, for some of the most important uh, most important outlets we have in the world. I mean, the New York Times and even Wired Magazine is an extraordinary uh, thing, Smithsonian and so on. New York Times, I have to believe, is pretty rigid about fact-checking, research, you know, as they should be. I mean, that's the nature of being a credible source. What's it like? What's it like to write for them? What's it like to put together science articles and so on that uh, that appear in their pages? That's got to be a, an adventure in its own right. Well, you know, I mean, it, I, I always feel it's an honor to write for these publications. You know, they were publications that I grew up with as a kid that my parents read, that I, I in turn read. So I, I've always been a great admirer of, of publications like the Times. And, and they do have a deserved reputation as, as fierce fact checkers. And when you write for them, I mean, you go into it knowing that that's the case. And so you're you know very careful uh, about your research and your fact checking, because the last thing you want to do is write anything that would end up getting into print that would embarrass either yourself or the publication. The biggest challenge I have when I'm dealing with a publication is, I mean, first of all, I tend not to accept assignments from publications. You know, sometimes a publication will contact me and say, hey, we'd like you to write about this. But if it's not a topic that I'm particularly interested in, that I don't want to pursue it because I have a very specific focus on what interests me. And and I find my work suffers if I have to write something, you know, for hire that's not that's not close to my heart. And so the challenge I often have when I'm pitching a publication is, you know, I'm telling them about one of these wet tech inventions. And they're by definition incredible and, and hard to believe. You know, at, at one point I remember pitching an editor on a story about um about aerial rowboats and 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 just the concept, you know. I had such a hard time getting them to understand what an aerial rowboat was. 
that, that, you know, in 1904, 1905, there were actually two groups who built these aerial rowboats and demonstrated them at, at, at fairs and carnivals, that they were basically blimps, one man blimps that you could row across the sky. You know, I had photographic proof, you know, uh, I had evidence. And believe me, I had to marshal all of that evidence. I mean, a, a lot of the editors just, you know, it was like pass, pass, because they, they had a hard time, um, you know, conceiving that this was a real thing. And so that's the challenge I sometimes face with these wet tech inventions is, is uh, you know, the more incredible they are, the more outrageous they are, the better a story they are, the harder it is for an editor to grasp that these things were actually real. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Aerial rowboats. I mean, I, I have this image of the sky filled with these things, and it it it, it feels like something right out of Yellow Submarine. <laughs> you know, I've, in, I, I'm, I've just finished a book. It's not out yet, but it's called White Elephant Technology, uh, 50 Crazy Inventions That Should Never Have Been Built and What We Can Learn From Them. And, you know, these in some of these inventions, there's like a um, the Soviet Union back in the 1920s uh, wanted to develop high speed railways. So they ended up putting an aircraft engine on a um, on basically a flat car. And, you know, it was a gigantic propeller to propel this train at high speed. I think it would do 80 miles per hour. And there are photographs of, uh, of the invention and the inventor. And, and, you know, like any of these stories. Most of them end up in some sort of, of tragedy or failure. In this case, um, it was carrying a, a train load full of uh, VIPs who were attending the uh, the Communist International meeting in uh, in Moscow. They'd taken them on a tour of some of the coal mines. They were bringing them back to Moscow. It had been a long day. So they wanted to crank up this new invention to its top speed, which they did. But of course, the thing derailed and disintegrated you know, killing people on board, including the inventor. And so these stories, when I say it's like the perfect expression of the human condition, I mean, these are these are stories where somebody, an inventor's passion and enthusiasm for their project can often lead them astray. And they don't all end in fatalities. And that was not by any means the last version of a propeller-driven train. The Germans came up with one in the 1930s. Um, in, in 1960s, the New York Central mounted two jet engines on a, on a, one of its rail cars to try to develop a high-speed railroad. I mean, these, these, um, there's no shortage, I would guess, of, wet, of white elephant technology. I mean, my file alone has a couple of thousand incidences. So I, um, I know it's going to be something I'll be writing for the rest of my life. And, you know, it's funny, one of my favorite writers is a guy named John Stilgo, and one of the books he wrote is called um, Train Time, and it talks about the sort of period of time at the turn of the 19th to 20th centuries when trains sort of gave way to automobiles or began to give way to automobiles. And he makes the point in the book that if you look at trains versus cars, one of the things that people don't realize without thinking about it is that trains tend to be concentrators of population, whereas cars tend to be sort of distributors of population, which of course makes total sense. But one of the things that came out of that book that still to this day just blows me away was this point that said, you know, in the early 1900s, the way we traveled was by train. I mean, that was our primary mode of high-speed you know, movement of freight and people because cars weren't that common yet. They weren't really widely available. The roadways weren't there yet, but the trains were. 
And he said, as a result of that, they took very good care of the tracks because they knew that this is a primary economic artery for the country. And so if you looked at the main lines that go from like New York to Chicago and then Chicago to either San Francisco or LA, the average speed on these trains at the turn of the century was well over 100 miles an hour because it was the only thing we had. They had to move, so let's maintain them. They had very powerful engines, obviously. And uh, and I was just, I was absolutely stunned by that because you don't think about, you know, you think about this little steam train hooting its way down the track at 40 miles an hour. No, no, no. These were big commercial vehicles that had to move fast because they had a lot of cargo to move. It's fascinating. There's a wet tech invention that was built by a Scott in uh, outside of Edinburgh in the 1930s. It's called the Benny Railplane. Benny was the name of the inventor. If you Google it and see the photographs of the Benny Railplane, it was really amazing. It, it was basically a suspended railway. Benny envisioned building basically a, it was like a monorail, an upside down monorail, in which there was this uh, uh, basically a structure that would be built over train tracks. The Benny Railplane would hang from the overhead structure would run on a rail and it had propellers at either end of the carriage to make it go forward or back. And, and he actually built a full scale uh, uh, version prototype of this and, and tested it um, and, and made, you know, headlines, uh, certainly worldwide headlines for this invention. It, it was a remarkable looking invention. And, and in some ways it made sense because he was going to build this infrastructure over existing rail lines. The idea was to partner with the railroads. He would do high-speed passenger traffic in the Benny rail plane, and then the train tracks below would be reserved for freight. So uh, there was a business, there was definitely a business model there and a case to be made. Um, and obviously, um, investors were interested enough that he was able to build a prototype, though I think he used most of his money for the prototype. But the problem was, at the end of the day, the railroads figured out he's more competitor than a partner. And so they, without the railroads giving him the right of way to build this infrastructure and this, you know, passenger traffic is a money losing proposition for railroads. Railroads make their money on freight. So I think that that in many ways, Benny had this great idea is, hey, look, I'm going to take the passenger traffic off the shoulders of the existing railroads where they lose money, and I'm going to turn it into a high-speed traffic, which is going to be able to charge more, and I'm going to be able to make money. So I think he had a sensible idea, but the railroads were too conservative and not willing to um, get, grant him the right way, at which point the thing didn't make any sense from an economic standpoint because he couldn't afford to build all the infrastructure from scratch without having the railroad right away. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. There's a thousand good stories out there of, of, of incredible inventions and, and people who get, you know, pretty far uh, along. Um, I mean, I don't write about an invention unless it's been it's been a working prototype that more or less worked as planned. You know, I don't I don't go in for, you know, speculative inventions or vaporware. I, I have to see that the thing actually was built. Now, you haven't. Own, this is terrible English. Books are not your only product. You've also worked on some interesting documentaries and miniseries and that kind of thing. Do you have a preference? I mean, I, they both require writing and research and so on, but. Yeah, you know, it's funny because of the two documentaries I worked on, both were based on uh, on books. 
I worked on a PBS television documentary called Japanese Super Sub, which was based on the research for Operation Storm. And then I just finished working on a Smithsonian Channel documentary called America's Lost Airship that was based on my research for uh, When Giants Ruled the Sky. It, it just aired last June. And I have to say, I much prefer writing books than I do working in documentaries. I mean, this is a personal preference, but you know, I find it frustrating because um, it's very difficult to tell a complex and nuanced story within 60 minutes. Whereas in a book, you have a lot more leeway to um, to get granular when you tell a story. Um, and then also there's a collaborative aspects to documentaries that that I, I prefer working as a sole proprietor on my books. You know, I'm, I, I, I love to roll up my sleeves and get deep into a topic when I'm writing about it. And I'm, I'm not really looking for feedback or input until I quote unquote finish the manuscript. Then I want to know what the editor has to say. But there's a collaborative aspects of documentary where you're, you know, you're constantly getting feedback at every stage of the, the process. And, and I find that I just don't have the greatest temperament in the world for that type of approach. I'd, I'd, I'd rather be uh, typing away quietly in my, in my room and, and developing the story uh, along the paths that I see as, as, as best fitted. Yeah, I, I think the idea of a linear path to book writing is a bit of a myth in the sense that, that you know, as someone who also does a great deal of research for my own books, it is a series of consecutive, often simultaneous rabbit holes that we dive down. You know, we, we always start out with this linear path that says, this is what I'm going to research. But by the end of the day, we've discovered all of these little sidelines that enrich and add to the story that we have to follow which is probably not as easy to do when, to your point, if you're working in a collaborative environment where people say, no, 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 stay on track here. We've got to stick to this one thing. And then by definition, you leave out all kinds of richness and context and nuance that would have done so much to make the story better, which of course you can do in a book. I mean, that, that's, to your point, a really good difference. And, and I think we writers, you know, we live in our heads. When you're working out a plot or structure, narrative arc or structure to a book, or even with just for a narrative arc for a chapter, um, you know, we're living in our heads while we're trying to work through these problems. You know, I, I, I usually work in the mornings. You know, I get up at six. I'm at my desk by seven or seven thirty. I usually work for four or five hours after which I go for a walk. And I find the walk, you know, the walk is because there's a lot of sitting when you're an author and it's important to get outside some exercise. So I'll go for a three mile walk or six mile walk every day. And I find that during those walks, problems that I was having with the narrative or I was working on, somehow my unconscious is 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 sorting through the problem. And then suddenly on the walk, I'll get the uh, a, a, an idea or a solution on how to solve that particular problem I was dealing with. So what I mean is it's a solitary, being an author or writer, it's a solitary pursuit. It's not like the uh, collaborative teamwork in a corporation, which, you know, results in a better idea. And I think the case of a writer is that, you know, we are the ones who are struggling to come up with the better idea. We're not necessarily looking for a lot of outside input uh, until we've gotten further along in the process and feel pretty confident about where we are. Because of the way our conversation is going, we've actually covered almost all the questions I had. So let me go to the very last one. So you're a journalist, you're a writer. That implies research, that implies talking to people, that implies collecting data and interacting. And yet, you are profoundly deaf. You went deaf in your mid-50s. 
How? How? I don't even know what the right question is to ask. You continue to churn out great material, and yet, and yet you are deaf. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I mean, I haven't always been deaf. Um, you know, uh, it was a kind of an unfortunate situation when I was in my late 40s, early 50s. Um, uh, my hearing really started to decline. And, um, and, and then I woke up one morning and you know, virtually overnight, I'd lost all of my hearing in both my ears, um, you know, which was a, a, a huge uh, setback, personal setback for me, because I really wasn't emotionally prepared uh, to deal with being deaf. And the thing that confuses a lot of people about my deafness is, you know, I'm, I'm what they call oral, you know, I can speak. Uh, and so, and, and, you know, the funny thing about the hearing world is somehow they think that hearing and speaking are somehow connected. They don't realize they're completely independent functions, that it is possible to be profoundly deaf and yet be able to talk. And, you know, I don't have any kind of speech impediment because, you know, over the first 50 years of my life, I was hearing. Uh, so, I mean, and I went through a period of time in my life and it was a very dark period when I, I, um, I was profoundly deaf and I was not able to afford any of the, um, uh, surgical procedures to get a cochlear implant, which I was a candidate for, uh, but it was just too expensive an operation. Um, and the, I, in some ways as, 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 um, as I don't know, what's the word I want to say, devastating, uh, waking up one morning and finding yourself deaf to be, it was also the best thing that ever happened to me because I had been, um, you know, up, uh, in, up until then, you know, I had been, uh, uh, working in the corporate world. Um, I'd been uh, the head of global sales and marketing for a division at Lucasfilm. Um, and uh, I, I had started out my career as a journalist, um, but I eventually decided, oh, I needed to make money. So I needed, I went into the business world and went into marketing. But I had always never gotten rid of the written, the writing bug, and I still continued to kind of freelance on the side and write opinion pieces and things like that. But once I lost my hearing, I was like, okay, how am I going to make a living? Um, because unfortunately, I found a lot of places would not hire me because I was deaf. So I thought, okay, this I'm going to go back. I'm going to rediscover my um, and, and in fact, the first thing I did is I went back and I wrote a memoir about the experience called uh, Here Today, Gone Tomorrow. Um, and then after that, I wrote uh, When Giants Ruled the Sky, and I've just finished the White Elephant Technology book. And now I'm working on another book after that. So basically what the de becoming deaf did for me is it is it helped me, the, the silver lining in the cloud is it helped me return to my my true love, which is which is being an author and writing. And and I guess the short answer to your question, but is how do I do it? Well, I eventually was able um, through the Affordable Care Act to afford a cochlear implant. Unfortunately, it was only one um, because the Affordable Care Act, as great as it is, only pays for one implant. And then I qualified for Medicare early, so I eventually was able to get a second cochlear implant. So now I have two cochlear implants. You probably can see. Um, one of the uh, devices that I wear on the side of my head, which are basically it's a microphone, um, which um, converts sound signals and relays them to the implants in my brain. Um, and so that I can now have about 60 percent speech comprehension. So in, in a situation like this where we're talking, I'm basically reading your lips, following the captions that I have at the bottom of my screen when you talk. 
And so with the combination of that, my residual hearing through the cochlear implants, lip reading and reading captions, you know, I'm able to hold, I think, what is a pretty convincing uh, conversation, though I do occasionally, um, as my kids will point out to me, make some real uh, ludicrous misunderstandings from time to time. But, you know, that, that, that just comes with the territory. Well, the truth is most of us only pay half attention when we're having a conversation anyway, and we probably all make the same kinds of boneheaded comments, and we can hear perfectly fine. So you're in good company that, in that regard. <laughs> no, my daughters often laugh at me because sometimes I, you know, I will answer one of their questions that they didn't ask. That wasn't the question they asked. They asked a different question. You know, okay, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty immune to those misunderstandings at this point, you know, I, I, you develop a pretty thick skin after a while, but yeah, I do from time to time, uh, you know, my, my deafness shows itself. Well, it's kind of interesting, John, because, uh, a few weeks ago I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, a fellow who I met, he was on, he was in a class that I taught online through Emory University, and I noticed during our Zoom call that he had he had cochlear implants. And I, you know, we've gotten to know each other pretty well. And I, I kind of chuckled and I said, "Dude, you're a cyborg." <laughs> and he said, "Yeah." I said, "You're like part man, part machine, right?" And he explained to me how it works and what the process was for training your brain to understand what comes through, that it doesn't sound like human speech. It was you know, quite an undertaking. Absolutely fascinating. And so I can tell you that, um, first of all, I'm you know, good on you for, for getting where you are in spite of what many people would consider to be an impenetrable barrier. Uh, and I also have to tell you, if I didn't know, I'd never know. I mean, your comprehension, your ability to answer questions, all that stuff, it, you as far as I can tell, you're hearing perfectly. So thanks. I appreciate it. It's been, it's been really good. Oh yeah. Listen, you know, I mean, the, the becoming profoundly deaf kind of opened up a whole new world to me. You know, once I accepted it, um, I found, a, you know, I learned a lot more about the deaf community, what it's like to be a deaf with a capital D, culturally deaf, you know, and I'm clearly not culturally deaf, but I have, you know, tremendous respect for the deaf community and in my, you know, everyone has to make their own personal decision. And in my case, I'd spent 50 years in the hearing world and it was really, I felt I was too old and too ingrained in the hearing world to abandon it and, and try something different. But I do have respect for the members of the deaf community who, who are, are not oral, who, who, uh, who um, communicate extensively through American sign language, which is, which is an incredibly beautiful and expressive language in its own right. Uh, um, so I, I guess in some ways, um, I, becoming deaf actually opened up some new horizons to me, rather than what some people may think, which is a narrow them down. John Gahagan, author, researcher, journalist, and a terrific storyteller. Thank you, John. Folks, to learn more about John and his work, please visit his website, which is johnjgahagan.com. Let me spell that for you. It's J-O-H-N-J-G-E-O-G-H-E-G-A-N.com. One more time, J-O-H-N-J-G-E-O-G-H-E-G-A-N.com. His book, Operation Storm, The Extraordinary Story of Submersible Japanese Aircraft Carriers in World War II, came out in 2013, 
When Giants Ruled the Sky, his book about the giant inflatable airships that dominated aviation in the 1920s and 30s, was released in June of 2022. And his newest book, White Elephant Technology, which I cannot wait for, will be released in the fall of 2023. Now, just one more thing. There's another book that John wrote that I strongly recommend. It's called Here Today, Gone Tomorrow, with here spelled H-E-A-R. It's about the journey he found himself on when he lost his hearing, literally overnight. I just finished it, and as he subtitles it, it is a tale of love and heartbreak and redemption. An excellent read. And by the way, you're going to hear more from John in episodes 203 and 204, which will be published very soon. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.